This episode of Out Alive is brought to you by Backpacker Basecamp. Go beyond the pages of Backpacker Magazine and join Backpacker Basecamp. Our new membership program connects you with exclusive benefits to get you out even more. Gear deals, video tutorials, exclusive newsletters, expert advice, members-only giveaways, and more. Join today at backpacker.com Basecamp. This story contains adult content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Firefighters, EMTs, police officers, soldiers, search and rescue workers. These people put their own lives on the line every time they go to work for strangers. Evolutionarily, this sort of self-sacrifice makes zero sense. People are selfish. We save ourselves first. We're just wired that way. So what's the difference about those people who take risks to save a stranger? What motivates someone to extreme altruism, literally improving the welfare of another individual at the cost of their own? What's their wiring like? Scientists have looked into this. Researchers at Georgetown University studied the brains of altruistic kidney donations to strangers— What they found was evidence that those who are willing to sacrifice their own well-being may have an enlarged part of their brain, the amygdala, if you're wondering, which is responsible for empathy. And in a way, those people are the glue of society. If we're sick, we can call someone to help us. If we're lost, there are people who will look for us. And if we have a brutal mountaineering accident at 13,000 feet, a network of individuals will attempt a treacherous rescue. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was a worst-case scenario. I was in a fight-for-my-life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. When we first began investigating today's story, we didn't set out to create a two-part episode. But the more we dug, we realized that this event and its repercussions went deeper than we could have ever anticipated. We couldn't do it justice in just 30 minutes, so what you're about to hear is part one of two. Mount Rainier is the tallest mountain in Washington state, and it's the most heavily glaciated peak in the lower 48. 26 glaciers make up year-round snowfields and technical terrain riddled with yawning crevasses. It takes skill and endurance to reach the summit, but that's still only halfway. The descent can be just as perilous, and that's often when things can go horribly wrong. So my name is Stacy Lytle. I grew up in Texas, and growing up in Texas, I didn't have access to a lot of the outdoors, but in college, I was exposed to climbing, which kind of became, it turned into this love of mountaineering. I think it went from being like, oh, I like doing things outside, to how can I set goals, and how can I, like, basically go after really hard things. Um, And for me, that looked like climbing really big mountains. 
We started making plans to climb Mount Rainier probably six months before we had, like, the date set. I don't remember what date it was. It was, like, mid-June. Um, and we we went up Baker first, and we're in, like, a horrible weather window. It was, like, complete whiteout. You couldn't even, like, see the crevasses, and the wind was crazy. So the following morning when we were planning to do our summit push on Baker, we decided that that was not a safe decision, and we um, we went down. But we knew that we had a really great weather window for Rainier. So we were not on the standard route. We were sort of on like the other side of the mountain. It's called the Emmons route or the Emmons Glacier. It's a similar level of technicality, but less crowded. And there's on the standard route, there's like flags to like to show where the route is. And on the route we were on, there's like no flags. So it's a lot of, it's really on you. I remember sitting in camp the day before our summit push and like you can see the summit and just trying to visualize standing on top of the mountain, like basically visualizing the goal, right? Everything was going really well. It was like completely clear. Our team was meshing really well. At this point, um, due to illness and you know, just some different stuff going on, there were four of us who were going to make the summit push. The climb up was honestly like really glorious. I think we all knew like we had trained hard for this. We were prepared for this. We were all working really well together and we were doing great on time. And we reached the summit. Um, it was beautiful up top. You know, we had like celebratory Snickers bars and took all of our photos and we're really just focused on like getting back to camp and having some hot soup and kind of celebrating our win. But what we didn't know was like at this time, there was a front that was supposed to blow in later that night or the following day, but it ended up coming in maybe like 12 hours early. So as we were on the summit and as we were starting to make our way down, um, the temperature just plummeted. And what the snow going up had been like really nice and like um, soft, but not too soft, like just really nice snow for walking and hiking basically but on the way down all of that all of that like nice soft snow had frozen hard uh, it had just rained recently uh, high elevations this is Peter Ramos he also happened to be summiting Mount Rainier that day you could you could basically say it rained on the summit of of Rainier, which is why uh, the slope was so uh, firm and icy. Guide services earlier that morning actually turned around because conditions were uh, too unsafe for the guides to feel like they could protect their clients in the case of a fall. Going up, we had crossed the Bergstrand, which is like a really big crevasse, kind of one of the defining features of the glacier. And there was this like really narrow snow bridge that we had crossed. And because the snow was a little bit warm, we knew that that had collapsed. So we knew we had to find like basically a different way to cross the Berkshire. But we were like, no big deal. Snow's in great condition. This is, we'll be fine. But because everything froze so quickly, we suddenly found ourselves on this much steeper part of the glacier that was around like a 50 degree steepness. I don't know if you've ever like stood on a 50 degree slope of ice, but it's like a little bit disconcerting. 
And below us was basically just like 3,000 feet of just run out. Climbing with Stacy that day were four of her fellow Texans, and Ross Van Dyke was one of those partners. So we had just summited. Uh, we were about 1,000 feet below the summit. We were doing a traverse, and they don't let you flag on the Emmons Glacier. And so we were trying to navigate around a Berkshund, and um, I was leading the group. And as we were going along, it looked as if there was, I don't know, 100 yards left, and then we would have been safe. So we had pickets that we were placing every X number of feet in order, and that we were basically running our, our rope through so that if someone fell, it would catch our fall. Basically making sure that like we would be safe there because we knew that this was kind of a, a cruxy part of the climb. And the, so the person in front was done with the traverse. He was on like a much safer part of the glacier and the others were coming up to that like safer part. And I was in the back, so they felt comfortable with where they were, and at the same time, like, we had essentially run out of pickets. So they were all in the front, and they weren't in the back, and we, as a group, made the decision to not place another picket. We were just like, we'll pull our gear, like, we'll be really careful, we're fine. In reality, like, I felt really scared because I wasn't on, like, this, the safe part of the glacier, right? Like, it was still pretty steep. But you never want to be like the weakest link, especially when you're the youngest one, especially like being female. Um, you never want to be the one who says like, I'm scared or like, I feel slow or like, I don't feel capable of this. But I didn't say anything. I just said, yep, that sounds good. Let's pull the picket. The fifth member of our team who hadn't been with us on summit day, was down at base camp and she was actually watching us through binoculars as we were descending. Here's Claire McDonald. Um, I got hurt a, a couple months before the trip and I wasn't able to train like I wanted to. Um, so I woke up that morning and was hopeful, but uh, you know, I also didn't sleep very well that night. My stomach was real upset. So I hiked down to the little uh, ranger station there and uh, they had some super high powered binoculars they were letting me play with. So I was watching everybody up on the mountain that day, and I was uh, I was looking right at them when they fell. So we pulled the last piece of gear. I took two steps, and on the second step, I was putting my right crampon down, and then it just didn't bite. It basically just slipped. And, you know, I had an ice axe. I was trying to self-arrest, but the, the snow is like incredibly hard, incredibly icy. And within like two seconds, I realized there's no stopping my fall. I remember jumping out in a self-arrest pose. I mean, I barely got my axe in before we were ripped from the slope. Like I felt like I was like pulled off of the, of the mountain. And when we fell, I thought immediately about my wife and I said, hey, this is it, this is how I'm gonna die. The Bergstrand that we were trying to cross this whole time was actually just below us. We couldn't see it, but when I fell, I remember the feeling of being airborne and knowing like, this is the end, like this is how I die. And then I hit the other side of the crevasse, like my head snapped back and everything went black.
I think I knew right away exactly what was happening and how bad it was because they uh, fell very quickly. Um, when they stopped falling, that was uh, surprising. I, I didn't understand how they stopped falling. Twenty minutes later, I woke up. I am laying on my back in the snow. I kind of opened my eyes and slowly kind of tried to take in what was around me. And it took a while for like all of my senses to come back, but I realized I was in fact not dead. And something was holding my harness. So I, I kind of noticed that there was like another person next to me and we were like tangled up in the rope and he was completely unconscious. One of my other partners was maybe 60 feet below me, also still like on the rope, but I couldn't figure out where my third partner was. But I noticed as I looked around that there were two ends of the rope that were going uphill. So I just started climbing. Like I, I didn't have an ice axe anymore. I remember, I distinctly remember like just climbing and trying to follow the rope up and like digging my fingernails like into the ice, just being like, I cannot fall. Like you just, you have to get up there. I eventually, I get to the edge of this like really narrow crevasse and I find my third partner dangling inside of it. She had slipped into this crevasse that all of the rest of us had just flown over. And her body inside the crevasse is what caught our fall and saved all of our lives. She's kind of like yelling, but I can't like really understand anything she's saying. And she's dangling sideways and she's kind of starting to thrash around so that her harness is slipping further and further down her leg. And I'm thinking like, she might just fall in. And this crevasse has no bottom. So like, if she, if she fell out of her harness, she would just be gone. And she's also what's keeping all of the rest of us alive. Like my two other partners are barely responsive and not doing well. And I'm like, how are we gonna get out of this? Here's Peter Ramos again. Remember, he just happened to be climbing nearby. So I had just summited Liberty Ridge on Mount Rainier with a friend of mine, and we were exhausted and ready for a break. But I looked over towards the Emmons Glacier, and I saw some bodies kind of laying down on their back with a knee up. I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to rest, and kept looking over towards uh, this group. And once we moved towards them, we realized it was no longer a rest. I said something pretty quickly to the two rangers I was with and uh, gave them the, the binoculars and they weren't sure, but I just kept telling them, no, they fell, they fell, they fell. And so they wanted to wait for a while and see if they moved and uh, nobody moved for a while. So that's when they started making radio calls and doing the amazing things they did that day. On the other end of those calls was David Bolger, a U.S. Army Reserve Chinook helicopter pilot. When I first got the call, I wasn't aware of how dire the situation was with the climbers or how bad the weather was becoming. So by the time I got to the unit and started doing the planning and got the weather, I realized that it was going to be 
very challenging scenario, and um, of course I was nervous. When I woke up, I didn't really understand, kind of took me a while to orient myself. I heard somebody yelling, but kind of in a movie when a bomb goes off and it's silent and you're like, and then you kind of hear a ringing and then everything kind of comes to. That's kind of how it was for me. And so I kind of woke up and I was like, man, where, where am I? And I looked around and I didn't see anybody. And so um, I then kind of hear someone yelling my name, yelling my name, yelling my name. And then um, I look up and I see Stacy yelling. I kind of yelled at him, like, you have to come up here. Like, I, I can't explain, but like, you have to come to me. So he like drags himself up this mountain and his pelvis was completely dislocated. I, I didn't know exactly at the time what had happened. I thought that I had uh, broken my femur. There was so much adrenaline going that I, at that point I didn't feel any pain. I proceeded to use my one good leg and the crampon that was on that leg and my ice axe in the opposite hand to climb up what may have been 75, maybe 100 feet to where Stacy was. I um, passed Stuart, um, but um, I thought he was dead. So he gets to me and he is like, hey, I think we should call 911. At that point, it's like, what do you even say? But we were like, we are on the Emmons Glacier, like we've taken a fall where we think we're around 13,000 feet, like, can you help us? And the person on the other end of the line says, yes, your accident has already been reported, the Air Force has been notified, and they're on their way. So on this mission, we had the two pilots up front, the one flight engineer that was surveying outside, the crew chief working the winch, and the National Park Service personnel were part of my crew. We picked them up at the base of Mount Rainier. Uh, and then uh, Madigan Army Hospital provided two paramedics to augment our crew. So prior to us lifting off, we just, we made sure that the crew was briefed. The, uh, the other pilot and I talked about everything we had to do step by step what would happen for each contingency. So we were well prepared, but we just didn't know the conditions of the climbers. We didn't know how, how bad that situation really was. At some point, we hear these voices above us and someone is yelling down at us asking, hey, are you guys okay? It took us about 45 minutes to get to where they were, and we're kind of in shock as to what had just occurred. So these two guys come down to us, and one of the guys told me, he said, like, hey, I'm, I'm a nurse. I'm an expedition nurse. I think he said he's an expedition nurse, and like, can I help you? I am a professional mountain guide as well. Basically, a glorified mountain guide with nursing knowledge. Once he showed up, I think I just kind of relinquished all control. My role was just to keep everyone as calm and peaceful as possible. At first I was like, holy beep. There were four bodies. One of them was in a crevasse. Two of them were sitting on top of a snow bridge right above the lady who was in the crevasse. And one guy was probably about 25 feet down the slope 
laying on his back. So I ran around on this very firm slope to check on these four people that had fallen. I asked for people to basically like raise a hand if you can hear me. And uh, three of them raised their hand, except for the person in the crevasse. They actually ended up sustaining a big head injury and they weren't following directions very well. She couldn't state her name. Uh, she couldn't state where she was. And uh, when I asked if people remember falling off the mountain, she did not. So basically at that moment, I knew that the person in the crevasse was more critical and we had to get her out. Up till this point, my partner in the crevasse had been our anchor, essentially what was holding us all, keeping us all alive, right? Like keeping us all in that part of the mountain. Um, and then he was able to set up an anchor and kind of around that point, some climbing rangers from uh, the base camp that we were staying at had climbed up to us. The physical effort that those two rangers put in getting up there, I don't know how they did what they did. Like it doesn't, the math doesn't make sense how quickly they were able to get from where I was to where our team was. It was just mind-blowing. They set an anchor. They were able to pull my partner out of the crevasse. Um, they were able to kind of stabilize our whole situation. I turned to the rangers once they arrived. They said, this, you know, this is your rescue and this is your mountain. You tell me where you need me. And they asked for me to do medical. And so I went around and started to do more thorough assessments on each person and the critical conditions that they were all in. One of the guys she was sitting next to, I think he had a broken leg and a broken arm and a broken back. And uh, the guy that I was covering at that time, he had a collapsed lung and I believe two broken legs. And the lady in the crevasse, uh, she had a dislocated hip, uh, she had a brain bleed, and I think she also broke her back. And soon after, a Chinook helicopter uh, arrived and started to assist with putting uh, the critical victims into a sled and hoisted away to a hospital. Well, when we got up there, um, we saw the, the climbers just just lined out along the glacier. They were all, you know, in the prone position. You could tell they were injured. And the rescuers had um, kind of triaged the people on the ground and, and set the order of how they wanted us lifted out. You worst injured first. So the first hoist, uh, uh, we lowered the hoist to the personnel uh, and lifted up the first climber with uh, with no issues whatsoever. Once we got the lady who's in the crevasse into the sled, the Chinook hoisted her up, and the Chinook then flew away for a little bit to, to cure her as we got ready to assist the next critical person off of the slopes. Um, the winds at this point were fierce, and a storm had moved in. And the guy I was uh, watching, he was starting to say he was feeling warm. And if someone's hypothermic, 
and they start to say they're feeling warm, it means they're at severe stage of hypothermia and recovery needs to happen at like you're it's it's a little late. The wind was getting worse and we knew that this snow system was getting closer faster than than we initially anticipated. So we knew we were uh, coming under a you know a tight window, but we knew we were just going to continue this operation and get as many people off the mountain as we could. All that I really remember is like how windy it was and how like the rotor wash was just so strong that it felt like it was like burning my skin just from throwing up all the ice. And it wasn't like the normal helicopter. It was a Chinook, which is like the two rotors. And seeing that hovering above you is crazy. I don't know if you guys have ever been around or under a Chinook, but it's, I mean, it's like a spaceship. I mean, it's just unbelievably huge. I have a good bit of experience in watching the uh, military guys fly those helicopters. I have an aviation degree, things like that, and it was just amazing watching the skill and uh, just the effort those guys put into. Helicopters don't fly real good at 14,000 feet. Everyone that day, uh, my crew, the rescue climbers, the paramedics, uh, they did a uh, phenomenal job. I mean, went above and beyond to try and, and make this this mission, this rescue happen safely. But it was a, a, a bad location, very steep. And the winds were so bad that when we got the litter on the ground the second time, uh, that was when the incident with Nick happened. Next time on Out Alive. It was just kind of chaos all at once. I nose the helicopter over, and I start just following him down the mountain. I just remember thinking to myself, don't hit the mountain, don't hit the mountain, don't hit the mountain. I quickly looked away, as I couldn't quite watch the rest of it. You know, you thought the challenge was over, but, like, it keeps going. Thank you to Stacey Lytle, Ross Van Dyke, David Bulger, Claire McDonald, and Peter Ramos for sharing your stories and perspectives. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, with story editing and sound design by Matt Cudair. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio, Inc. Our associate producers are Zoe Gates, Amelia Arvison, and David Gleisner. A special thank you to search and rescue workers everywhere, but particularly the Mount Rainier National Park Climbing Rangers. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.